but long about quarter to four in the afternoon, I'm getting a little sleepy. <laughs> Are you all okay? I can't believe you've made it this long. Isn't your heart full? Mine is. I say, thank you, Jesus. Now just make room for more. I need more. I always want more. I'm very honored to be with you today, and I have chosen as my passage to share with you this afternoon Isaiah chapter 41, verses 17 through 20. If you have your Bible, would you turn there, and then I'll be reading from the ESV in just a minute once you've had a chance to find Isaiah 41, 17 through 20. When the poor and needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. I will set in the desert the cypress, the plain, and the pine together, that they may see and know, and that they isn't the trees, that they is the people who are seeking water, that they may see and know and may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this, the Holy One of Israel has created it. This afternoon, I'd like to walk through these verses with you. And by God's grace, may He show each one of us grace in our wilderness experience, wherever that might be. My main idea that I want you to walk out with before you go to dinner is this. The Lord gives Himself remarkably when nothing else works. The Lord gives himself remarkably when nothing else works. I have three points that I want us to consider about the desert in this passage. The desert is inevitable. The desert is humbling. And the desert can become a gift of grace from God to you. First of all, the desert is inevitable. Look at verse 17 with me. In your translation, what's the first word? When? It is in the ESV. When. The desert is inevitable. Not if, but when. You will find yourself in a desert at some point in your life. If you haven't been yet, you will need to cross a desert at some point in your life. All of us will experience some sort of desert experience before we reach heaven. Now, the wilderness and, and desert are mentioned many times in the Bible. It's an important biblical theme. Think of those who've gone before us, who've gone through a desert or a wilderness experience. Can you talk back to me some of them? Who do you think of when you think of wilderness times? In the Moses, yes. He had kind of two. Think of the wilderness of Midian. He was there for 40 years with his wife and his 
two little boys, and that was kind of a wilderness experience for a prince of Egypt. And then perhaps you've also thought about the 40 years in the wilderness with all the Israelites wandering in a desert wilderness. That was really a desert. My goodness, if you figure mathematically, it, it's been said to estimate 40 deaths per day. Think of the burials and the funerals for those 40 years. Others, can you think of other people who've experienced, in the Bible, desert experiences? Jesus, his 40 days in the wilderness during his temptation, yes. How about David when he was running from Saul? He had a wilderness experience, didn't he? In those caves, Saul was seeking his life. What about Elijah when he flees from Jezebel? Do you remember that? 1 Kings 19. His desert experience was rather short. It was one day, the Bible records, but it was so bad after that long run and all that he had been through, he asked the Lord to take his life. He said, please, I have nothing left to live for anymore. Take my life. Well, the desert's an important biblical theme, and we're going to see that. We're going to walk through it together and see how God gives us grace in our desert experience, in our wilderness. Now, when you hear the word desert, you probably think of a barren expanse of sand and rocks going on forever. That, that is a, the biblical idea of desert. It, it can also mean, though, an extensive plain that would be used to feed sheep. There might be grass there, but the grass is all dried up. It's of no use right now, especially one without trees. It, it can also, in some passages, denote a wasteland or a scrubland filled with wild beasts, terrifying beasts that would really scare you and threaten you. The point here is that there is nothing easy or comforting in the desert. It's a barren place, a wasteland. It's obscure and unknown. It's desolate. It's deserted. It is unending emptiness. A desert is dry, scorched, barren. A wilderness is uninhabited, uncultivated, confusing, overwhelming, scary. Moses described it in Deuteronomy 8.15 in this way. The great and terrifying wilderness. It's an overpowering and scary experience to be caught in a desert or a wilderness place. And our verse here with the very first word indicates that it's inevitable. The hardest part, I believe, for me at least, in my desert experience has been that there's no way out and there's no end in sight. It's just sand forever, barren, dry. I don't know how to get out of here. Every human resource is exhausted and we have no other option than to just keep wandering through this dry and barren place. Psalm 107 verses 4 through 6 put it like this. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Isn't that interesting? The psalmist talks about their inward attitude even more than their body. A desert experience is life-draining, it's soul-depleting. It, it never breathes life into you. 
Now let's take this image of a physical desert and apply it to our inner lives, those souls that faint. A desert can be almost anything that drains you. It can be anything that saps you of spiritual vitality, causing you to kind of shrivel up and, and dry up and shrink inside. Psalm 143.6 puts it like this, My soul thirsts for you like in a parched land. Or Psalm 63.1 says, My soul, again that inner life, my soul thirsts for you. My soul faints for you. That same image of a soul fainting. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. A desert never gives life. It only takes it. A desert could be anything. I'm sure many deserts are represented here this afternoon among us. It could be infertility. It could be singleness. It could be a rough marriage, a rebellious child, a never-ending financial, financial difficulty, an unresolved health problem, a terrible job, loneliness. Maybe your church is your desert. Or maybe you are someone else's desert. Your anxieties and burdens all those things that weigh you down have dried up your heart and all you know how to do is drain those around them to suck them dry. A desert is the place where you feel like God is absent, uncaring. Perhaps he's turned aside. A desert is where you're crying out, How long, O Lord? How long? where your soul is fainting within you, Psalm 107.6. You cry out like Job in chapter 13.24, where Job says, Why do you hide your face from me and count me as your enemy? That's a desert experience. When those whys rise up in your soul, and you say, I, I don't get you, God. I don't know what you're doing. Now, Maybe you are in a desert right now. All is dry and barren. Maybe you're in a wilderness right now. Life is confusing and overwhelming and somewhat terrifying. Let me tell you, God has a gift of grace for you in your desert. Hang on, we're going to see it in our passage. The Lord gives himself remarkably when nothing else works. Or if you're not in a desert right now, maybe... You can look back on a desert or wilderness time you've had and gone through in your life. You can testify to his gift of grace there. You've experienced Christ giving himself to you when nothing else worked. Maybe you've never experienced a desert, but let me tell you, as an older woman in the Lord, you will someday, and God's grace will meet you in your desert place, and he will give himself to you in remarkable ways. The desert is inevitable, and this is why I say it, not just from the word when, but the desert is inevitable because the desert is the only way out of our own personal Egypts, our own personal slavery to our life the way it is. We have to travel through the desert to leave our Egypts. 
We have to walk through our deserts one step at a time, and that's scary and hard. I believe God takes every child of his out of the slavery of Egypt through a desert. The only other option is turning back to your Egypt to save you. Sometimes anything looks better than your desert, even going back into the slavery of your Egypt. I mean, think of the children of Israel. Numbers four, 11, Numbers 11, verses 4 through 6. This is right after Sinai. And this is what is written there. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving, and the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost us nothing. Oh, do you hear that? They were slaves. But looking back on their Egypt, it felt like it cost them nothing. They just wanted to get out of their present desert. Or Numbers 14, verses 1 through 4, Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept and grumbled against Moses and Aaron. Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? Sometimes an uncertain future is scarier than a horrible past. And so we resist going forward. At least we know the trials of our present desert. But it doesn't have to be that way. And I want you to see that as we carry on through our passage. It doesn't have to be that way when God is calling us into and through that wilderness experience. Calling you to follow him through the wilderness into your better future. When you were a kid, I don't know, I'm, I'm 64 and so I come from learning little church songs when I was in the 1950s. And we had this old chorus. Do, do any, are any of you old enough to know this? My Lord knows the way through the wilderness. Mary! And you're so much younger than I. But, well, you know it's wonderful. My Lord knows the way through the wilderness. All I have to do is follow. Hello. Strength for today is mine all the way, and all I need for tomorrow. My Lord knows the way through the wilderness. All I have to do is follow. The wilderness and desert is inevitable because it will teach you to follow Jesus. The desert, point two, is also humbling. Look at the next few words. When the poor and needy, poor means they're no means of support, no resources, deficient to provide any need. It also can mean bankrupt or needy. That means they're destitute. They're really hard up. When the poor and needy seek water and there is none and their tongue is parched with thirst, do you see that word seek? This poor person, this needy person, is not just lying there in a puddle of tears. This person has, is seeking. She's working towards relief. She's desperate. She's seeking water. Water, think of water. I mean, he's not talking about food here. Just water, the basic need of life. It's the most basic of human needs, even before food. And, and there is none, because a desert is a near death experience and you will feel like you might die in it 
Their tongue is parched with thirst. They're dried up, shriveled, withered. You can do nothing. You're powerless to relieve your pain. You feel humbled and helpless because there's not a thing you can do. But when you hang in there, and we're going to see this, and I hope you embrace this, when you hang in there, the desert is where you learn to trust God. The reality of our circumstances bring us face to face with our own inability to make life happen according to our dreams and plans. Face to face with our own humanness, our own helplessness. Either God will get us through this earthly desert or we will die and we'll go to be with him forever. When we reach this point, we have one of two ways to respond. And in the desert experiences I've been, I'm sorry to say I've responded both ways. One way that I don't recommend, but I have experienced myself to my shame, is that I question God and I really, I shake my fist at him. And I say, how could you? Why don't you? When will you? We had three little children under the age of three, and my husband had already graduated from college, and he had a seminary, a master's of theology, and then a uh, master's of art in, biblical, in Hebrew from Berkeley, and uh, Dane, our number three, was born at his graduation from Berkeley. Not at it, but during that time. <laughs> that would have been a picture. Um, and about, Dane was two or three months, and Ray came to me and he said, Honey, I, I want to go back to school. And I am thinking, Darling, you know, you've got three degrees. This must mean a PhD. And I wasn't really happy about it at first, but Ray was kind and patient with me and prayed me through it. And after two years of praying for me, the Lord changed my heart, and I said, Okay, I'm ready. And we sold everything we had. We lived in Southern California at the time, sold our home, our car, our furniture, our appliances, kept some wedding gifts and my piano and raised books. And we packed uh, in our suitcases, we each were allowed two suitcases, and we moved to Scotland where Ray was going to study for his PhD. And um, after, it was a four-year program, we invested with a godly Christian investor whom we had studied for maybe three or four years, his financial practices, many of our friends invested with him. But two years into our program, the, the month our fourth baby was born, our investor went belly up and we lost every penny and we, we had nothing and Ray could not work in Scotland um, because he was on a student visa. And so it was hard because we didn't believe, I, I'm not saying that this is a moral issue, but for us, we didn't feel it would be right to ask our friends and family to support us. So we just lived for two years on prayers and faith and 25 pounds a, a week from the Scottish government for milk and stuff for the babies. And you know, it was a desert experience for me. My soul was shriveling up. And this is why, dear sister, it's because I felt I had made a deal with God. I had, you know, we had a bargain going. He asked me to be submissive and supportive of this man I had married, and so I said, 
okay, we'll, I'll go overseas, and yes, we'll sell everything, and okay. And then I felt in that obedience, God owed me blessing. And the blessing to me meant a keeping, a, keep, a guarding of our finances. So when we came back to the States, we'd have money to buy a car and a down payment, those kind of things, furniture, washing machine, a refrigerator, you know, the kind of things we like to set up home with. And I went through a very hard time. Why? Because I kept questioning God. Lord, I am so sorry to say this, but this was my heart. If you had peeled apart the layers of my flesh and got down into my spirit where I was struggling, I was saying, God, you did me in. I thought obedience produced blessing, and this isn't blessing. This is bankruptcy. And I had to see, you know, that life with Christ is not a bargain. I, I, my dear husband walked with me through about eight weeks where I was really struggling with depression over this and because my spiritual faith was on the ground in front of me, just dead almost, except by the Holy Spirit's power. He was fanning the flame of it. But according to me, it was like, Lord, I don't know who you are. I don't know how to trust you in this. And Ray said, I, 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 honey, is it not enough that he died for you? What more do you want? And then he said something that really caught me up short. He said, I believe you're in a very dangerous place because you're angry at God. Well, I don't know if you can identify with that. I won't go into all the, the story, but the Lord did bring us out, and I'm standing here. I didn't starve to death. Our four kids are clothed and in their right minds. We have a washing machine and a dryer. I mean, the Lord cared for us. I, I don't want to take time right now to go into that, but I do want to say that it is very easy to test God in our hearts as women. And we test him by bargaining with him. I've done this, now you do that. I've said this, I expect this. Your word says blessing for obedience. Listen to Psalm 78, verses 19 through 20. They tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God saying, can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck the rock so that water gushed out and streams overflowed. Can he also give bread or provide meat for his people? They tested God in their hearts in this way. They knew enough of God to know that he had done some things in their life, but would he really bring them all the way to the end? So that's one way we can respond to God in our desert, with a clenched fist, with questions why, when, how, how long. Or... The second way we can respond is we can bow in humility before the God of the universe and say, you are God and I am not. Behold the handmaiden of the Lord. Be it done unto me according to your word. Though this desert be the end of me, I will praise you as I'm ushered into your presence. It's the humble who learn to trust God. 
God tells us that our desert experiences have a specific purpose. Listen to these verses from Deuteronomy 8. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart. He who led you through this great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, and he brought water out of the flinty rock. When every human resource is exhausted, only God remains, and that's not a bad thing. The good part of the desert is that you begin to realize that God is all you need, and then he becomes enough. Things that used to matter to you don't matter as much as he does. God gets your attention because he is all you have. The desert humbles and grows you in ways that no other place could. It makes you lean hard into God. You find yourself praying some of the prayers found in the Psalms, like Psalm 86, 7. Give ear, O God, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. I need grace in this desert. Or Psalm 63, 9 and 13. I'm weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord. At an acceptable time, O God, answer me. I had the privilege of having a wonderful relationship with my godly father-in-law, Ray Ortland Sr. And he used to tell me when I would struggle, he would say, Janny, waiting is what faith does until God shows up. Waiting is what faith does until God shows up. The humble are those who can look into their own hearts and let God test them. Humility develops patient trust. The humble are those who can say, there is something bigger going on here in my life and in the lives of those around me than I can see with human eyes. This isn't just about Janny's story. It's not just my story. It's about my part in his story, his great story of redemption and renewal throughout the whole earth. It will be costly. It may not make sense to me now, but by God's grace, I'm going to hang on to him and he's going to help me. Now finally, my final point is with the rest of the verses because we want to camp more on who God is than what our desert is like and how we re respond in a desert. I want to tell you that a desert, I believe from this passage, is God's gift of grace to you. The desert is where God gives you his greatest gift, which is himself. His presence can be seen more clearly in the desert because his glory isn't being blocked out by any of your idols from Egypt. The desert dries up every idol of your heart and you're more eager to respond to the lover of your soul. Think with me of Hosea 2. I won't turn there right now, but let me just read some of the phrases from Hosea 2. Therefore, God is speaking, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness, desert spot. And I, the Lord is speaking, will speak tenderly to her there. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. 
and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in steadfast love and in mercy, and you shall know the Lord. Where? In the wilderness, Hosea 2. It's in the desert that a relationship of intimacy and real love is nurtured. How do we experience God's grace in the desert? Well, for one thing, you have to be willing to go through it, to not give up. And your desert will be your own individualized one. You may read about another's. We've been reading lately in the States about uh, Miriam, the, the Sudanese mother of two. She's now been released, but she was in prison and... You know, I, I don't know about you, but sometimes when I read about something like that, I imagine, how would I respond? What would it be like? What would I do? And uh, sometimes when I imagine, I, I try to think how I would bear up under that. And I see myself as, you know, pretty much bearing up. And then my own desert comes, and I'm knocked back off my feet, and it's nothing as bad as what she went through. And I... I I say, Lord, this wasn't the desert I was expecting. Could I have her desert? I don't like mine. As Anne Shirley in Anne of Green Gables says, as she's thinking Marilla and Matthew are going to send her back for a boy, she says this, it's all very well to read about sorrows and imagine yourself going through them heroically, but it's not so nice when you really come to have them yourself. It's true, isn't it? So how do we come to experience God's grace in our own deserts? By trusting his promises. And I'm going to walk you through these promises. And I hope that as you walk out those doors toward dinner, there's going to be a spring in your step. Oh, may it be. We trust his promises until they become a personal reality. By waiting in faith in our own deserts until he shows up personally, for us, his promises then become our own personal reality. Let me suggest, oh, there's so many promises we could talk about here. Let me suggest four, all right? First of all, he promises abundant provision. Abundant provision. God will be there with you in the desert. Look at the six I wills of verses 17b through 19. I've circled them. Six I wills. They show the abundant provision of both water and shade in a desolate environment. The first one, I will answer them, makes me think of Luke 11.10, for everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. Now he doesn't say I'm going to answer them right then. He doesn't promise time he just promises an answer. He will answer you. Verse 17, I will not forsake them. It reminds me of Hebrews 13. You could say it with me. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Psalm 56, 9, this I know that God is for me. In God I trust I shall not be afraid. First one, I will answer them. Next, I will not forsake them. Oh, look at verse 18. I will open rivers on bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. Now this is not just a little morning dew or a light sprinkling with a watering can. It's more like Niagara Falls. Do you get the picture here? 
Psalm 78, verses 15 through 16, he split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock and caused waters to flow down like rivers, waterfalls. Our God is not stingy. Oh, he's so generous. Another, the fourth, I will, verse 18. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry lands springs of water. Listen carefully to that language, dear sister. Think back with me to John 4.14 when Jesus is talking with the Samaritan woman at the well. He says this, Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. It's in the desert that the Lord comes and gives you that eternal spring of water from which you begin to drink deeply. This isn't a man-made well that you've dug for yourself. Think of the difference between a well and a spring. It's an eternal spring. You can never deplete God. God refreshes his weary pilgrims. He is thirst-quenching and life-giving. My husband was preaching recently on John chapter 4 and really helped me with this. He, he said this in a recent sermon. How small are our thoughts of God? We perceive him with categories of scarcity and reluctance. We think in terms of our wells and we hope he might add his blessing to our limitations. But John 1.16 rebukes our meager thoughts and says this, and from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Massive grace, more than we can expect. He forgives and he rewards. He justifies and he adopts. He defends and he makes us more than conquerors. He washes our sins away and he puts glory upon us. The Bible speaks of the immeasurable riches of his grace toward us in Christ Jesus. He's not about to run out now. That's the kind of waterfall that he's washing over you and putting into your heart to spring up as an eternal spring. The fifth I will, I will put in the wilderness, and I find this so interesting, he, he, he's going to put in the wilderness all these plants. I love this. First, he, uh, we won't take time to go through each one individually. I'll just make a few comments because our time is flying. But I will put in the wilderness the cedar, Oh, that was used in Solomon's temple. The, the acacia, which was used in the Ark of the Covenant and, in the, and for the table, for the bread in the tabernacle. The myrtle, which is an evergreen, and it, it had clusters of white flowers that were very fragrant and could be perfumed. And the olive, verse 19, think of how important the olive tree was. It, it was the most valued of all trees. It was called the king of trees. It took a long time to grow. It symbolized peace and a settled habitation because it took so long to grow. It produced fruit and oil. Oh my goodness. And then the seventh, I will. I will set in the desert the cypress, the plain, and the pine together, these large and attractive evergreens. They're used symbolically to indicate that the desert, your desert, your wilderness, will become a place of fertility. Wycliffe Bible Commentary 
on this passage says this, even in the most distressing hardships and times of gravest peril, God will abundantly furnish all his people might need, invigorating their souls with sweetest refreshment and appointing for them shady and beautiful gardens and groves for their spiritual delight. The seven species of trees here symbolize the perfection of God's work. He promises abundant provision. He also promises comfort, the kind that will bring great joy. He promises more than just relief. Isaiah 51.3 puts it this way, For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her thanksgiving and the voice of song. God, in his grace, will turn our deserts into a garden of Eden for us where we can fellowship with him. Can you imagine the garden of the Lord? I love gardening. Ten years ago, we started from scratch in our little home there in Tennessee. I was in a new state, and I had to learn a lot. We moved into a new subdivision. There was nothing but red dirt. And so it took some perseverance and some trial and error and a lot of waiting, but oh now, if you came to my house, you'd see the azaleas and forsythia of springtime, the red buds and the dogwoods, the daylilies, the coneflowers, the butterfly bush and the magnolia tree. Oh, the lamb's ear and the joe pie weed and the bee balm and you'd smell the Russian sage as you walked by our front door. Oh, I can't forget the hydrangeas and the forsythia and the red trumpet vine and the Carolina jasmine. And that's just on my little postage stamp. We only have six feet between us and every house in our neighborhood. <laughs> Can you imagine? What would God's garden be like? Oh, he makes our wilderness like Eden. And we can commune with him there. He can make your desert like the garden of the Lord. Wait on him. Hang in there. Number three, he promises us insight into who he is and how he works. Look at verse 20. That they may know and may consider and understand together. The wilderness that you might be in right now is where God is deepening your faith. He is setting you apart to himself. God is involved in your life and he will carry you through anything he allows into your life. He's renewing and deepening your faith and you will become living proof that no desert is so big that he cannot redeem it and make it a garden. He's asking you to consider who he is and understand him better. He will refresh you with hope. The desert is where you will fall in love with God again. And when you look back on your desert, you will thank him for it. He's taking us in our deserts more deeply into his love. And he asks us to trust him enough not to take offense, as I did in Scotland, but to follow him there. The desert is the place where you ask questions like, do things just happen, or is God really in this? Am I involved in chance or providence? 
It's in the desert that God gives us eyes to see our lives as meaningful subplots in the divine drama of grace. Now, finally, and this is the most important for grace in your desert. He promises that it all depends on him. It's all of grace. In a desert, you can't dig your well deeply enough to find water. What does God want you to consider and understand in your desert? Look at verse 20, the very end. That the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. Our God is the God who creates beauty out of nothing. Grace doesn't add to what's already there. Grace comes to help us when there's nothing there. That's what grace is. Notice that last phrase of our passage, has created it, not added to it. God does not need good conditions to accomplish something beautiful. To create something is to make something out of nothing. God pours out refreshment on his own dry daughters. He's a great, he has a gracious eagerness to bear our burdens. We can come to him with nothing but need, and he welcomes that. He says, it's the poor in spirit that I come to and congratulate. He says, now, my daughter, now you understand how this works. I'm the creator. I, I'm not just an add-on to your life. Psalm 107, verses 35 through 37 put it this way he turns a desert into pools of water a parched land into springs there's that word again springs of water and there he lets the hungry dwell and they establish a city to live in he pours life-giving refreshment into dry people let's be women who come who seek it who embrace this fullness, who experience God. Let's be living proof of what only God can do through his grace in our lives because authentic Christian living is miracle. Now let me conclude with this. The desert is the middle of your story. It's never the end. Even if your desert kills you, you will be with Jesus. Gospel stories always have some sort of suffering in them. Don't give up. Don't give in. He will give you grace in your wilderness. In the hard times, turn to him, not away from him. I love how Keith and Kristen Getty put it in their, their hymn, When trials come, no longer fear, for in the pain our God draws near. To fire of faith, to fire of faith, worth more than gold. And there his faithfulness is told. And there his faithfulness is told. Jeremiah 31.2 says this, The people who survived the sword found grace in the desert. When Israel sought for rest, the Lord appeared to him from far away. Your heart longs to be satisfied, and it will seek satisfaction somewhere. Every human heart 
yearns to be satisfied, and God wants to be that satisfaction for each of his daughters. He's calling to you and to me in love. God's love, as we all know, is not something we need to struggle to earn. We don't need to fear losing it. His love is something that he delights to bestow upon us through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. I have time to read a favorite quote of mine from a, a Puritan preacher, John Flavel, in the 17th century. He, in one of his sermons, he imagines God Almighty talking with God the Son, building the covenant of redemption. And this is what the conversation goes like. The father says, My son, here is a company of poor and miserable souls that have utterly undone themselves and now lie open to my justice. Justice demands satisfaction for them or will satisfy itself in the eternal ruin of them. What shall be done for these souls? Son, O oh my father, such is my love for them and pity for them, that rather than they shall perish eternally, I will be responsible for them. Let me be their surety. Bring in all thy bills that I may see what they owe thee. Father, bring them all in, that there be, may be no after-reckoning with them. At my hand thou shalt require it. I will rather choose to suffer thy wrath than they should suffer it. Upon me, my father, upon me be all their debt. Father, but my son, if thou undertake for them, thou must reckon to pay the last might. Expect no abatements. If I spare them, I will not spare thee. Son, content, Father, let it be so. Charge it all upon me. I'm able to discharge it. And though it prove a kind of undoing to me, though it impoverish all my riches, empty all my treasures, yet I am content to undertake it. And indeed, Christ was, and he did. You see, we often come to God thinking we're making a covenant with him. No, our salvation is much larger than that. Within the triune Godhead, God made a decision with Christ about me, about you. Christ effected it on the cross, and the Holy Spirit sealed it with his very presence in our innermost beings. So won't we now answer his loving call to seek him more fully in our deserts. There's a place in God's heart for him to come to you in your wilderness. He wants a deeper intimacy and communion with you. Keep your heart open to Christ, even in the midst of your desert. He knows you best and he loves you most. He will give you his gift of grace in your desert. Abundant provision, comfort that produces godly gladness, and insight into who he is, and how very much he loves you. The Lord gives himself remarkably when nothing else works. Let me pray for us. Oh, Lord God, such things are almost too wonderful for us. We can hardly accept this and contain it. We struggle so in our dry and barren places, in our own wildernesses. Lord, would you not pour out upon us abundant provision of eternal springs welling up within each one of us? 
quenching our parched souls? Would you not give us shade in our desert? Would you not create a beautiful garden for us to walk with you in until we see you face to face? I pray your provision and your comfort and your insight over my sisters here today. Speak to that daughter of yours who's in a desert. Meet with her, Lord. Provide for her. And in that, we will see that your son receives a little bit of the reward of his suffering on our behalf, and we will praise you and thank you. For it's in his name we pray. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.